Hello, Professor McGuire. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on CommerceConnections.tv. You're welcome. First of all, um, I really, really want to compliment you and commend you on your work uh, on your new book, At the Dark End of the Street. I believe it is going to set a new uh, historic precedent in regard to civil rights and segregation, uh, the movement that took place, what we know of in the 50s and 60s, but we had no idea that it had started back in the uh, in the uh, year of, I believe, what did you say, 1944? 44, that's right. So... Um, now, for the purpose of this interview, is it better if I call you Professor McGuire or would you rather be called Danielle? You can just call me Danielle. All right. All right, Danielle, can you give us a brief professional background? I am an assistant professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. I received my Ph.D. from Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I did a bachelor's and a master's degree in African-American history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I see. And you are a historian, correct? That's right. Now, what made you uh, decide to take courses in African-American study? Let me just ask you that. Yeah, it's a long answer, sort of. There's sort of two... Well, the the biggest reason is because when I was a senior in high school, yes. I read a book called Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel, and it was about inequality in public schools. I grew up in a very white town, and... Uh, that was very homogenous, and I read this book, and it was about the ways in which students of color throughout the country are denied the same opportunities and access to quality education that white students are, and I was appalled. I felt like I had been lied to my whole life, you know, because I was raised to believe everyone was equal, and I believed it, you know, in my naive, young way. Um, and I read this book, and I wanted to see if it was true for, you know, my community um, and the community around me. So I went to a public school about 30 miles away from my school, and that was Milwaukee South Division High School. And it was totally different. You know, the students there were receiving an education that was significantly less thorough than my education. There was no college counseling office. There was a military recruiting office instead. Um the AP courses were courses that, you know, I would have taken in, like, the eighth grade instead of senior year in high school. And the top seniors had scores on the ACTs and SATs that were way low. I mean, there was no way we were competing with one another to get into college. And it was clear that the schools were inherently unequal. So that sort of started my quest to understand how we got to that point as a nation. Your book at the dark end of the street. I was listening to a radio interview, and they were interviewing activists from Montgomery in the bus boycott. And one of the men said that Gertrude Perkins was the most important woman in the Montgomery bus boycott, but no one's ever heard of her. And I was listening, and I said, that's right, I've never heard of her. Who the heck is Gertrude Perkins? Oh. Everyone knows it's Rosa Parks, right? Right. So uh, I you know, hit the books, couldn't find anything about Perkins, and so I went to the archive, and I found out that Perkins was a woman who was brutally raped by two white Montgomery police officers in 1949. And her protest, her public protest and testimony, launched a movement in Montgomery that lasted for at least two months, put the whole city on notice that 
African Americans were no longer going to tolerate white men's abuse of them any longer and without impunity. And the infrastructure that was built during the Gertrude Perkins protest was called on again and again in Montgomery uh, for a decade before the bus boycott and then in the bus boycott. And I had that story, and I thought, okay, that's interesting, but I'm not sure how it connects to the boycott. It's six years earlier. And then I started doing more research, and I found, you know, a decade's worth of cases in which black women were violated by white men, particularly employers, bus drivers, police officers, and the black community, especially black women, and people like Rosa Parks and Joanne Robinson, you know, people who were prominent in the bus boycott, who we know something about, they're active in defending black women from white male sexual violation I see. in the early 1940s and 1950s. And so it, it was like it opened up a whole new window into looking at the movement. I see. And yes, as a matter of fact, I believe I read something about uh, the lady you just, you just spoke about. And uh, they were saying that she, that Rosa Parks is not the first one who stood up for uh, her rights as far as riding the bus. That's right. There were a number of women before her. There were there was a young girl in particular, Claudette Colvin, who uh, was arrested and beaten by the police. And, uh, you know, the problem was in the 1950s that you had to have the right plaintiff. You know, the 1950s was a time when the nation was plunged into the Cold War, and segregationists in the South had been angered and were very nervous and upset by the Supreme Court ruling banning segregation of schools, and so they were on the defensive. So African Americans in Montgomery had to pick the right person to serve as a symbol for segregation. The person they chose was Rosa Parks because she was respectable. She dressed properly. Uh, people thought highly of her. She was working class, but she had middle class um, you know, mannerisms. And so everyone could kind of get behind Rosa Parks. She also happened to be one of the most radical militants in Montgomery at the time, although, you know, any portrayals of Parks today sort of leave that part of her out. Right. I remember in your book you write about her uh, grandfather inspiring her through uh, the uh, speeches of uh, Marcus Garvey, correct? That's right. Her grandfather is a Garveyite, mm -hmm. and, and so they're black power advocates. They believe in black nationalism. Rosa Parks was raised to believe that you don't really turn the other cheek. Um, and, you know, she believed in many ways and was raised to believe in self-defense. After the bus boycott, she became a, 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 an ardent admirer of Malcolm X and of Robert F. Williams, who was a militant uh, leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina, who advocated armed self-resistance. She spoke at his funeral in the 1990s, and she was part of the Black Power Movement in Detroit. So, again, this is part of Rosa Parks' history of, of radical activism and militancy, you know, her fierceness that we never hear about. I see. And so then, so that... Uh, initiated the the project from you you know mm -hmm. digging through the archives and then what what made you decide to make a book out of your research? You know I didn't know that this was going to be a book when I first started. I just I was just interested in these stories and so I started reading about them. You know I read black newspapers from the 1940s and the 1950s and on the front pages of of every copy that I looked at was a story about an attack on a black woman by a white man or a group of white man, men. And so I thought, there's something to this. This isn't just one incident here and there. This is happening again and again and over time and over space. And the attacks are stunningly similar. You know, they're ritualistic. And 
they seemed very similar to the attacks I had read about during slavery. To be so, the evidence mounted, and I had no choice but to write about it because the evidence presented a story that hadn't been told before. I see. And so now let's go a little bit into the book. Let's talk about, and I always ask authors, your dedication page, because you dedicated this to Reese Taylor, and then you also dedicated it to your new daughter, Ruby. And I want to know, why did you combine the two? Well, the two of them uh, represent for me um, the past and the future. I see. Reese Taylor uh, never received justice. Mm-hmm. And she's still searching for justice. She's 91. She's still there. And I believe that her testimony in 1944 and her continued testimony today about what happened to her, you know, her courage to still speak out today, enabled future generations of women to speak out and to let go of the shame that surrounds sexual violence. And so I feel like Ruby, my daughter, and myself, you know, we're standing on Reese Taylor's shoulders, and we're standing on the shoulders of all the women who paved the way for for us today. I see. And so, and, and that being said, what I want to do is I want to remember the survivors, their uh, them as victims, their struggles and their triumphs, and then bring Rosa Parks in and how she started to help Reese Taylor. So now, can you tell us a little bit about Reese Taylor? Yeah, Reese Taylor. Uh, was in her early 20s in 1944 and she was walking home from a church revival in Abbeville, Alabama in September and a carload of white men picked her up off the street drove her to the woods and they gang raped her at gunpoint and when they were finished they dropped her off in the middle of town and they told her if she told anybody what happened they'd kill her it was a real threat in 1944. I'm sure. And and so what happened, uh, I thought one of the gentlemen did not participate. There was one who did who, who watched. I mean, he, he was complicit in his silence. Um, I see. But that's right. So she was, she was raped by most of the men, all but one. And uh, it was just a brutal, brutal crime. I see. And so, and, and then uh, they offered her, her husband, I believe, $100 a piece for the actual rape to be uh, in order to compensate for uh, the crime. Yeah, allegedly, you know, Taylor spoke out about what happened. She told the sheriff, she told her husband, she told her father. And before long, you know, the men were brought in for questioning. Um, And in order to get her to shut up, apparently uh, they offered to pay the family. Well, they said no, they wouldn't accept their money. They wanted justice. And, you know, they could have used the money at that time. $500 in 1944 is a lot of money. Yes, yes. And it would have made their life, you know, in terms of material respects, easier. But they refused because they knew that that that, that was an effort to whitewash and to erase what had happened to her. And so they said no, and they pushed for a trial. And, of course, there wasn't a real trial. I mean, they had... um, you know, sort of a pretend grand jury hearing where Taylor and her family showed up, but the assailants did not. Mm -hmm. I see. And so so years later, we know that it was Hugo Wilson, Dillard York, uh, Billy Howerton, Herbert Lovett, Luther Lee, Joe Culpepper, Robert Gamble. Did any of these send her an apology or are any of them still living now 
As far as we know, and this is from, you know, Taylor's family and her siblings who still live in Abbeville, uh, as far as we know, they're all uh, dead. Um, And none of them, not once, not ever, did they ever apologize. And not once has the family received any kind of apology from the city or the state for their complicity in covering up what happened and enabling these men to go free. I see. So now let's move on because we want to talk, you know, uh, about uh, some of the other survivors. What about, uh, let's see, Melba Patillo? Right. Well, Melba Patillo, uh, known today as Melba Patillo Beals, was one of the Little Rock Nine, and uh, which is incredible considering in 1954, right after the Supreme Court issued its decision banning segregation in public schools. I see. She's just a girl. She's walking home from school on the day the decision comes down. And a white man gets out of the car and sees her walking home and chases her through this wooded area near her house, wrestles her to the ground, pulls off her underwear, and attempts to rape her. And another child uh, sees what's happening. She hits the man with her backpack. The two girls are able to escape. And she goes home and tells her parents what happened. They decide not to tell the police because they're afraid that the police will hurt them even more. Um, and they keep it to themselves until she tells her story in her memoir. I see. Um, but now, then she goes on to become an activist in Little Rock, so I think that that's really important because she didn't let the shame of, hold her of, back. of sexual violence hold her back, right? She yeah. didn't let them take her soul. Mm-hmm. I see. Now, what about Annette Butler? Annette Butler, this is a really you know, sad and interesting case. Annette Butler... Uh, in 1956, she's a young woman in Mississippi, and there are some white men who, uh, Ollie and Ernest Dillon, and Olin and Dorora Duncan, four white men, and they decide, and this is what I saw again and again, that they want to go out and find a black woman to have sex with. And so they just go and find one. They take somebody. And then right. exactly what they did with Butler. I, I'm glad you said it like that, that they just decided that they wanted Yeah. Because the more I read your book... I said, you know, this is not just a thing of terror. This is something that they want to do. It's almost like a hunting rabbit. That's right. That's exactly what it is. They they get the urge and they decide that this is what they're going to do. And they say, we're going to go get an end woman. That's what we're going to do. Right. And so so that's what they do. They go looking for someone. They, They actually find a black man working in the field and they... You know, point their guns at him and say, "Take us to a house with black women in it." Right. And, and the man risking his life takes them to a home, and there's a mother and a daughter there. She's 16 years old, and so they they uh, they kidnap Annette Butler from her home. They drive her into the swamp, the Bogue Cheeto Swamp in Mississippi, and they take turns raping her. And then they leave her. They abandon her there in the swamp. Oh my. She somehow makes her way to a stream, and there's some black men fishing, and they rescue her, and they take her to the police. She reports the crime. Again, this is before the women's movement. You know, this yes. is before uh, speaking out was even something that women could consider safe, but even more so, she's doing this to white policemen who are just as guilty of raping black women as are these random men. Exactly. It takes extraordinary courage for her to even talk to the white police in 1956. So she tells the police, and before you know it, the men are brought in, they're questioned, they admit to the crime, but they don't think they're going to get in trouble because this is something that's been happening since slavery, and most white men get away with it. Yeah. So they're actually put on trial. One of them actually pleads guilty, and he's sentenced to 20 years of hard labor, but the rest of them are acquitted by an all-white jury. Now, the really interesting thing about this case is that 
The judge is Tom Brady. Tom Brady is the father of the White Citizens Council, the, the, the sort of uptown Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi. And he wrote a book after the Brown decision called uh, Black Monday, America Has Its Choice, Segregation or Amalgamation. So he is a staunch segregationist who is against integration at all costs. And he appoints the county's best attorneys to defend these young men who have integrated, you know, with black women. Exactly. So, so he's a total hypocrite, mm-hmm. and he's he's full of shit. <laughs> and and he and he you know he uh, he gives these guys every advantage, and they're acquitted, of course, by a white jury. The one who admits his guilt, he basically lectures him on how he's a shame to the white community and a shame to the white race. So he's not he's not upset that he raped a woman. He's upset that he admitted that it was wrong to rape a black woman. Right. And so, in other words, they 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 were still showing that they did not respect black women as uh, humans. Per not se. at all. That's okay. right. That's exactly right. And not only did it that, but they couldn't even hold true to their own ideology of segregation. Right. Right. Because because their raping was really led by lust. That's right. Okay. Uh, now let's take a let's talk about um, Betty Jean Owens because when I read about her after she had attended uh, some dance at uh, was it a college dance or something? That's right, Florida A and M University, a historically right. black college. And, and I, I said after I, after I read the part where one of her assailants kissed her on the neck. I said, you know what, this is not about trying to terrorize somebody and actually make them, um, you know, feel that they're uh, submissive to the right race. This is a lot of people sowing their oats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because a lot of white men really believe that they needed to have sex with a black woman for their first sexual experience. Right. And 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 they wanted to, you know, um, Andisha Ida Mae Holland, who's in the book, talks about how Everyone, you know, everyone knew among whites anyway that that you know white men wanted to have sex with a black woman before they died, and so like I said before, they just went looking for a black woman and they took her whenever they felt like it, right? Um, because because so often they were able to get away with it because the you know white judges and juries didn't consider this a crime, and that's a legacy that's rooted in slavery, right? And um, I think also you had mentioned in the book there was a quote that says. Folks used to tell in the South no white man wanted to die without having sex with a black woman. That's that- right. That's that's right. That's Andisha Ida Mae Holland and right. and her memoir and her testimony about her own rape in 1955 is is stark and saddening and just heart wrenching because she was just 11 years old and she was raped by a white man who you know she says the the, the feeling took him and he took me. Just like that, she said, like lightning. Wow. Well, now, let's move on to Rosa Lee Ingram, because I felt bad for her because she had children, and she was raped by someone, a a white man, and um, I believe she killed her assailant, correct? That's right. Well, it's it's murky. It's a a murky case. Rosa Lee Ingram is a sharecropper. She's got... I think 11 children, mm-hmm. and they're sharing the land. They're sharecropping the land with a, a white sharecropper. This white sharecropper was harassing her repeatedly and attempted to rape her one afternoon, and she fought back, and her sons came to her defense. So they got into a fight, and I think in 
in defending their mother, they knocked out the white sharecropper, and um, he ended up dying from the assault. I see. So no one could really prove who who hit him, you know, which which was the blow that killed him, because they were all sort of struggling for their own safety and for their own freedom and for their defense of their own bodily integrity. Uh, but she was put on trial for murder and uh, was sentenced to death for murdering this white man. And there was a huge movement to free her from jail and from this death sentence because of this long history of white men attacking black women. And there was this argument, which you don't really get a jury to admit uh, to admit to that black women have a right to defend themselves from sexual violence. So they used that argument in the 19, early 1950s with Rosalie Ingram, and it's not really tested until the Joanne Little trial in 1974 when an, uh, a jury actually acquits Joanne Little, a black woman, for killing her assailant after he attempts to assault her. But Rosalie Ingram, even though she was sentenced to death, she only got how many years? She only served she, how many years? Uh, probably about 10 total. Nice. Um there was a major movement that was led by uh, the labor unions and the left and the Communist Party and the NAACP throughout the 1950s to get her uh, justice, and, and they succeeded in the end. So, so basically, she she lost the right of her uh, her young life in raising her children and watching to see them grow up. Correct. That's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The children were in prison for part of that time too. I mean. The, the, the boys who helped to defend her were also imprisoned, and they were young, you know, so they lost their youth, too. I see. Well, uh, now, oh, wow, this is really something. Uh, what about uh, now Daisy Bates? Her mother was raped and killed, and so she right. sought out to, to find the assailants, but that didn't take place. So what happened there? Well, Daisy Bates, is, as you know, most people know, is the heroine of Little Rock, and uh, she's one of the fiercest women uh, warriors, really, in the South during the Civil Rights Movement, and the leader in the NAACP and in the state of Arkansas. Um, she takes the murder and rape of her mother, and she uses it as fuel to, you know, mobilize campaigns to protect and defend Black women who are similarly assaulted. So. Her and her husband have a newspaper, the Arkansas State Press, and throughout the 1940s, she uses her newspaper to call out white men who attack black women and to try to bring justice to the women who are victimized by white men. And so this is a way for her to, in some ways, you know, psychologically at least, avenge her mother's assault and murder. But it also turns her into um, a freedom fighter. And she uses the pain of that violation in many ways, is an opportunity to really push for justice. And I think she does that really effectively throughout the 40s and then into the 50s with the Little Rock crisis and throughout her whole life, really. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I want to say that that was very, very courageous of her because, you know, I can't even imagine something like that happen. I believe some some gentlemen attacked my mother when she was uh, in her 40s, and she got away from them. They, they wound up cutting her hand. Oof. Uh, so, you know, I can understand her, uh, her pain. Uh, so, but, but now let's talk a little bit about Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer. Again, another warrior for freedom in the South. I mean, what's so interesting about, 
all these women is that, you know, a, a number of them become civil rights leaders and icons, and their testimonies help to mobilize communities in defense of civil and human rights. And so, but before that happens, of course, they have to be strong enough to withstand not only the beatings and assaults that they're given, but also, you know, strong enough to repeat the story and to testify about it in front of people and over time. Sandy Lou Hamer was a sharecropper for a number of years in Sunflower County, Mississippi. And when SNCC came to town and asked her to register to vote, she decided she wanted to register to vote. And she was kicked off the land that she had worked for, I think, 19 years. Just wow. like that. Registering to vote, she was evicted. And she became homeless overnight. So, she becomes an activist for SNCC. They put her on her payroll because she has this amazing singing voice and this, you know, uncanny ability to organize. You know, she's got no experience as an organizer, but people respect her. She knows every song that there is to sing, and she knows her Bible back and forth. Mm. So she's a real leader, and she's on her way to a voter registration clinic, and they stop in Winona, Mississippi, to integrate a restroom. And they're arrested, and they're thrown into the Winona City Jail. And in that jail... Daniel Hamer receives a brutal sexualized beating where the police officers not only beat her, but they lift up her dress continuously, they ogle her, they touch her inappropriately, they make nasty sexualized insults, and um, they leave her permanently injured. And this comes, of course, after, you know, a few years earlier, she had gone to see the doctor for what was really a stomachache and left without a uterus. Exactly, and, and tell the listening audience the term they call that in Mississippi. They call it the Mississippi appendectomy, and they called it that because it was so common for black women to go into the doctor with a minor complaint about a stomachache or indigestion or an ulcer or something, and they, they were almost always uh, sterilized without their consent and without their knowledge. So in other words, then in America, they were doing the sterilization, and then uh, prior to that, during the, the Nazi regime, they were doing sterilization on... Uh, yeah. So it was just really something that was kind of going on around the world. That's right. You and so think if, about. You know, if you look at the way, if you look at the rape and the sterilization on the same sort of spectrum... Um, what you see is white men attempting to monopolize and dominate and control black women's bodies and their sexuality. I see. And so, so then her statement where she says that, uh, you know, um, you know, that they were always at the mercy of white people, that was the truth. That was the truth. And she said a black woman's body was never hers alone. I see. And that was, that was painfully true. Viola Laiuzo is a very interesting individual. She's a white woman from Detroit. And she watched the voting rights marchers being beaten by the Selma, Alabama police on Bloody Sunday in the spring of 1965. And she felt the call. She felt the urge to go to Selma to help with the march. had mounted a campaign in Selma, Alabama to push the federal government to pass the Voting Rights Act. 
Now, in 1964, we get the Civil Rights Act, but it didn't include the enforcement of the 15th Amendment to the Constitution, which was enacted in, you know, right after the Civil War. Um, so African Americans still couldn't vote in 1965. In 1965, I mean, this is an ancient history. So they launch a march, you know, to force the federal government to deal with the fact that they still don't have voting rights. And they choose Selma because Bull Connor, the sheriff in Selma, is a well-known bully and very violent segregationist. Yes. And they can count on him in many ways to be violent so that the news cameras and the media and the nation will actually pay attention to black people's demands. So they launch a campaign in Selma, and they're they're ready to go out on Sunday. I can't, I can't remember the exact date. I'm sorry. For a historian, I have a terrible memory. Um, and they're marching over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and, and just as they you know, march over the hill of that bridge, they see waiting below at the foot of the hill, just headed outside town, is a flank of police officers with gas masks and on horseback with their billy clubs out, ready for what looked like war. And these are nonviolent demonstrators. This is the SCLC. This is King's group. Yes, yes. SNCC, SNCC had decided to stay out of this march because they didn't feel like they could totally be committed to nonviolence. So this is SCLC, nonviolent march, passive resistors. And they stop when the police tell them to, and they're waiting for orders. And the police officers charge into the crowd with their horses and their billy clubs, and they start beating people mercilessly. It's all captured on television. Most of America is watching the trials of Nuremberg right. on ABC. And ABC breaks to live images from Selma. So in some ways, the American viewing audience on television is seeing what's happening in Nazi Germany and watching the atrocities there. And then, all of a sudden, the camera switches to Selma, and it's the same kind of nonsense. Exactly. And, exactly. and hatred. Right? Exactly. That's what we were talking about earlier. And I like the term you use, nonsense. That's right. beat people who again are passive resistors and because it's captured on camera it makes a lot of people in the nation fearful angry fearful angry they want to do something about it the president you know finally i think really commits to pushing for legislation to make sure voting is a right that everyone you know can be uh given and guaranteed um well it's, it's an important moment Mm-hmm. Despite the violence. Now, before we get to so Emmett Till, he was really a part of this uh, process that was going on to terrorize, and that's you know it, you, you understand what I'm saying. In other words, yeah. the 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 black women were being raped, so right. then the the black men were probably um, you know. Uh, were being lynched but they were right. retaliating as well right. and so and so maybe you know it was a joke to him and he was just a part of that era where these things were happening correct right right well he's from the north he's from chicago he's not trained in the same way that southern black youth particularly boys were trained and that is to not look at a white woman to not talk to a white woman to just avoid the white women because you know white people at the time, and I'm speaking generally, of course, I'm not talking about everybody, but generally speaking, you know, the majority of the population, 
you know, they were hung up on this idea that black men wanted to have sex with white women, that the only purpose of black equality was to, you know, marry white women, which just was never, ever true. Mm -hmm. And uh, white people were so worried about black men sleeping with uh, uh, white women, and they should have been worried about white men sleeping with black women because they're the ones who are actually doing what African-Americans called nighttime integration. Right. Um, Exactly. Yes, because that's one of the reasons why you named your book At the Dark End of the Street is because uh, talking to some of the people who were uh, attacked, they were actually seeing this going on at the dark end of the street, correct? That's right. That's absolutely right. So, you know, they would be looking out their windows at night and they'd see white men driving into the neighborhood looking for black women, harassing black women, even black women who were married or were on dates with black men. White men had no shame. You know, they would whistle at and cajole and harass black women who were with their husbands. Just total, it's just just total disrespect. Absolute and total disrespect. I see. So now let's move on a little bit further. Let's talk about Mayor Gale with the bus boycott and the domestics who, uh, the black women who used to ride the buses, and they decided to uh, stand up for their rights. Amazing story, too. I mean, the Montgomery bus boycott has always been told as a story that was spontaneous, that was, you know, begun because Rosa Parks had tired feet, and that then it was led by male ministers, particularly Dr. King and Ralph Abernathy and Reverend Say. And, you know, they played a very important and prominent role. I don't mean to dismiss them, but black women made up 90% of the Montgomery City Line's ridership. And if they didn't stop riding the buses, there would be no boycott. Black women were the backbone of the boycott. They were the chief negotiators and organizers. They ran the day-to-day operation of the boycott. They raised most of the local money for the boycott. They were the ones who marched, and they filled the pews at every single mass meeting for the entire you know year that they boycotted the buses. So they made the boycott happen. And if we want to know why, why did black women boycott the buses on mass in Montgomery in 1955 and 1956? It's because buses were sites of violence. It's not just because they couldn't sit at the front or they had to pay at the front and walk to the back. Those things were humiliating, and that was part of it. But buses were sites of violence. Black women were humiliated on the buses. They were sexually harassed and sexually abused on the buses. They were physically assaulted on the buses. They were beaten on the buses. Bus drivers had police power. They carried blackjacks and guns, and they often used them whenever people refused to abide by the racial order of Jim Crow. And so buses were sites of violence. And for so many working-class black women, mainly domestics, they had no choice but to take the buses. They couldn't afford cars, and they had to get to the whites out of town to work. Exactly. So they had to take the buses. So the buses, in many ways, were the bane of a black woman's day. Right. And not only that, with that being said, not only that, these women were trying to go to work to help feed their family. That's right. And so not only do they have to put up with white folks' crap all day, you know, and, and, and deal with white folks in their own homes, where they're often very vulnerable. I mean, they're alone in those homes, isolated. Oftentimes they were assaulted sexually and physically in those homes. Um, but they're doing this so that they can take care of their own families. They're doing this to put food on the table, to survive. And then, you know, simple transportation, they're mistreated and humiliated and degraded and treated like they're 
things instead of human beings. And when black women during the bus boycott testified about what made them boycott the buses, those are the things they talked about. But no one wants to write about that. Instead, they want to talk about what King did and how Rosa Parks had tired feet. And it's, 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 a, it's a bigger movement. You know, it's a, it's a women's movement for dignity and not just a movement about segregation. Well, well, Danielle, you say no one wants to write about it, but no, enter Danielle McGuire, <laughs> the professor who brings this all to light. And I'm telling you, it's going to shed new light in the uh, African-American community. Now, I still want to talk about Mayor Gale because he had a get tough policy. I want you to explain that in a minute. But also I want to talk about his statement when he said he had an intent to abolish the Negro race. So tell us a little bit about his get tough policy. Yeah, so it's the third month of the bus boycott, and white people are pretty astounded. I mean, they really can't believe that African Americans had the wherewithal to pull off such an incredible movement. And they thought it would go for maybe a day or a week or something. So it's the third month of the boycott. Mayor Gale is really upset. He's just seething with rage that this boycott is successful and that the bus company is going to go out of business. And whites are embarrassed by this, right? Um, because it because it gives the lie to the fact that African Americans, uh, in their minds, are inferior. Because here it shows that African Americans are superior, that they have a better system, that they don't need the white system. They can do without it. Um, so Gale arrests everyone. He he dusts off this 1921 bo- anti boycott law and just starts arresting people for sitting the wrong way, for driving the uh, car that's the wrong color, for driving too fast or too slow, or you know any old thing. And Taylor Branch calls it the largest wholesale indictment in American history. Right, and, and, and Danielle, I wanted to bring out a point here, too. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading in your book that you also stated that the women who were waiting to be picked up, when they were standing waiting to be picked up to, you know, be driven to their job by, you know, someone in their group, right. they were arrested, correct? Correct. And. And because black women are the main leaders of the boycott, they're also the most visible targets for retaliation by whites. So as they're waiting at those carpool pickup locations, they're attacked by whites who are passing by. You know, they have eggs thrown at them and water balloons filled with urine often. Um, The main leaders of the boycott, you know, their cars are uh, attacked, their homes are um, bombed in some cases, and uh, they, you know, night riders pass by at night firing bullets into their homes. So... You know, women are also the targets of, of, of retaliation, you know, at the same time that they're leaders of the boycott. So Gail tries to arrest everybody, and it backfires when everybody goes to the courthouse and they turn themselves in. They say, are you looking for me? Well, here I am. Go ahead, arrest me. Now, tell, tell the listening audience who were the people who turned themselves in. Well, Rosa Parks, for one. Okay. Edie Nixon, Reverend Say, and then just a slew of women. Gladys Moore and Hazel Gregory and uh, Georgia Gilmore and Martha uh, Blackman. And, you know, you just name after name after name. So you've got about 90 to 100 people that come to the courthouse all at once and say, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> okay, and including Martin Luther King, correct? In- including Martin Luther King, that's right. And they're really interested in Martin Luther King because they think, you know, he's the new guy in town. Yeah. And they assume that this outsider... This communist, you know, of course, King is not a communist, has come in and stirred up trouble, gotten all the African-Americans in Montgomery upset, 
and they were so happy before, which is, of course, a lie. Um, and so they're really focused on King, and they, want, they think if they can arrest King and jail King, that the movement will end. And they learned something that day because the black women start testifying that King doesn't have anything to do with it, that it's their movement. And they boycotted the buses because of the way they had been mistreated and the way they had been humiliated. That's something that is very important to the African-American community because they were hailing Martin Luther King for that. They thought that that was his victory. As a matter of fact, when he left the jail that evening, when he was released, uh, I believe in your book it says something about it says, uh, Behold the King, Hail the right. King. They called him the Apostle of the Civil Rights. Right. Is that correct? Right. It is correct. And, you know, it's it's part of it is just the time period you know it's the 1950s and of course people are going to look at the men as the leaders it's the gender politics of the day uh at the same time you know you have to understand i think that black men during that time period were not given the opportunity to be leaders and they were denied manhood by white supremacy and so african americans were really proud of king you know king was an amazing orator and an amazing organizer, you know, and he became, I think, you know, he wasn't when he was 26, he was just learning, he was fresh out of graduate school, you know, um, but he became, I think, one of the world's greatest uh, 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 fighters for human justice and human dignity, and so I don't mean to take anything away from him, because I love Martin Luther King, right. but in 1955, everyone focused on King because he was a man, and because he was a minister, and because he was upper class. And, and um, because he was a great orator. That's right. That's right. You know, I mean, he had this gift, and there hasn't been anyone who's really been able to match it, I think. Um, so, so Jet Magazine called him the modern-day Moses. That's right, as if he alone could deliver African Americans from the wilderness, which is just impossible, right? I mean, you, you, you needed the movement, and, you know, King didn't make the movement. The movement made King, and that's so true in Montgomery. And so, I like what you just said. King didn't make the movement. The movement made King. Yes, yes, I, I, I believe so. And, and also what I wanted to say, too, is, is that, you know, when we think about women, we still cannot, you know, negate the fact that the African-American women had Martin Luther King not came along. Right. They still would have stood strong, don't you think? Absolutely. Joanne Robinson, who was leader of the Women's Political Council, uh, a group of African-American middle-class women, they had threatened a boycott in 1954, so a good year before the boycott actually took place. And Joanne Robinson was ready to boycott the buses when Claudette Colvin was arrested. And Edie Nixon, who was, you know, a a, a very prominent and well-respected activist in Montgomery at the time, said no. Claudette Colvin isn't the right kind of plaintiff. And he said, you have to wait. And Joanne Robinson was really angry about that. So when Rosa Parks was arrested, Joanne Robinson said, we're not waiting for your permission. We're not waiting for you. We're having a boycott. We're not even going to get Rosa Parks' permission. We're just going to do it. And if you want to join us, well, we'll be happy to have you. So they launched the boycott without King, without any of the minister's consent. So absolutely they would have done it without King or without any of the men anyway. I see. And then they, they started the, these 100 miles of walking in protest, correct? That's right. That's right. Just that day, uh, Joanne Robinson went to Alabama State College where she was a professor of English, and she photocopied, before there were photocopy machines, (laughs) uh, 50,000 flyers 
that she and her army of women, you know, disseminated uh, across the African-American community in barbershops and bookstores and uh, beauty parlors and churches and, you know, everywhere, um, and got the word out that there would be a boycott on Monday, December 5th, 1955, whether anyone liked it or not. And they announced it in, in gender terms. You know, they said, another woman has been arrested. And if we don't do something, it could be you or your sister or your mother. So this was about women. And it right. was about the way the women were being mistreated. Mm-hmm. So um, they're the ones who launched the boycott. And then, of course, Joanne Robinson and other members of the Women's Political Council, especially Hazel Gregory, they go on to maintain and to organize the entire boycott throughout its 381-day duration. My, my, my. That, that, is, that is really astounding. And then, not only that, after they... So, uh, um, Browder versus Gale, that's Mayor Gale, and that's mm-hmm. Aurelia Browder. Mm-hmm. That's the decision that ends separate but equal on public transportation. That's the decision that overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, the 1896 decision that made separate but equal the law of the land. We often think that it's Brown, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision that overturns Plessy, but it's not because Brown is an education decision. And in order to overturn Plessy, you need a transportation case. So it's Browder v. Gale, the case that comes out of the bus boycott, and for whom four of the plaintiffs, or all four of the plaintiffs, are women. And they are African-American women. And they are African-American women. That's right. Oh, I'm not talking about white women in any of this. This is the African-American women's movement. The Montgomery Bus Boycott is a black movement, period. It's not even, it's really not even integrated, you know, the way that some of the other civil rights movements are. It's it's an almost entirely African-American movement. I think there's one white minister who's really, you know, active, and he's got a black congregation. Um and that's Robert Grace, but it is an African-American movement. So now what did this lawsuit actually do? It actually ended the final chapter of segregation on public transportation? That's right. The Supreme Court ruled that segregation on public transportation was inherently unconstitutional. And, and in that sense, it overturned Plessy v. Ferguson's 1896 decision saying that separate uh, accommodations on public transportation was equal. So it's it's... You know, it's an enormous victory for America, and it's an an, an enormous victory for African Americans, especially those who fought so hard in Montgomery. Uh, After disclosing overlooked facts that revealed the sexual exploitation of African American women who endured decades of terror, tragedy, and abuse as as the struggle for civil rights and desegregation in America, what would you hope the listening audience and those who read your book will gain from this astounding historical new information? Thank you. You know, I want them to understand this history and, uh, you know, because, you know, the old saying, if we don't understand our history, we can never really... um, if, if, what, how did the, I sound like George Bush. I can't remember the quote I'm trying to say. Um, 
uh, if we if we don't remember the past, we're we're doomed to for, uh, to repeat it, right? So That's right. I think that we need to understand this history, and we need to understand it because we need to come to terms with it so that we can move forward as a nation. We've never been honest about the racial terror and crimes that have been committed by whites against African-Americans, particularly African-American women in this country. And we haven't been honest about the long history of interracial sexual violence. And I don't think we can move forward as a nation until we're honest about those things, until we can reconcile ourselves to that brutal history. But also, I think, we need to understand this history so that we can understand that black women played such an important role in in, uh, our freedom as women, as Americans, and as human beings. And that we wouldn't even have a civil rights movement or a woman's movement, for that matter, without the patient toil and testimony of hundreds of thousands of African-American women. Yes. And And I I hope that they understand this history. And believe me, when the word gets out, and and believe me, it is, because I know when I was telling people I was going to be interviewing you, they were like, I just, I I think I heard her talk about her book on uh, Democracy Now. Oh, yes. And I I was like, yeah, I said, so, you know, you know, this is, this is a book that, that is a must read. It's a must keep. It's something that, you know, if people have a, a, a regimen where they, you know, buy books and keep them in their repertoire. I believe that this is one that needs to be, uh, you know, in in their repertoire. So um, uh, before we go, Danielle, will you please give the listening audience your website? Sure. It's at thedarkendofthestreet.com, and you can read an excerpt. You can hear testimony from Reese Taylor and some of the other women. You can read articles about the other women. You know, Reese Taylor is still looking for justice. She's 91. There's a movement, actually, to try to secure justice for her still. I hope people will look into that. Um, and I hope that they read the book, and, and I hope that people feel comfortable contacting me about it, too, because I'm happy to hear comments and answer questions. Okay, and uh, I will be contacting you soon. Uh, I want to thank you so much again for joining us tonight here on CommerceConnections.tv, and uh, I can't wait for your, your, your next discovery. <laughs> thank you. All right, you have a good evening. Thank you, you too. It was so great talking with you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.